holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Ahí va a llegar el gol del Arsenal Ophil. Marca Mesut Ophil. Bellerín, otro defensor, otro disparo, Monreal, gol. Marca el futbolista español, marca Nacho Monreal. Pim, pam, pum. This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunnerblog. James, a very goodly, stokely unhappy morning to you. Yes, goodly, stokely unhappy morning to you too. Uh, I imagine that you enjoyed that. I did enjoy that in the end. I think it would be fair to say in the end. Like at the start, (laughs) I didn't enjoy it. And then in the middle, I didn't enjoy that much either. Uh, I kind of enjoyed halftime because uh, I played a bit of uh, Far Cry 5, which I just downloaded over the weekend. So I had a little 10-minute go on my game. I enjoyed that. The opening part of the second half, I didn't enjoy. I didn't enjoy Mm. the bit where uh, Shakiri hit the post with a corner because I was thinking, oh, you know what's going to happen here? They're they're just going to like score one from a set piece or something like that will happen and we'll just panic. And and then... Then I enjoyed it when we got the penalty, and subsequent to the penalty, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, yeah, yeah. The first seventy minutes, I could I could do without really ever seeing much of that ever again. Uh, it was really, really. I don't know if it was just that it was kind of a bank holiday, and so you know, I was kind of like a bit more sleepy and less interested than I normally am. But that game was really trying my my patience, but. Maybe it was all worth it. It was kind of a purgatory we had to endure for that delicious last 20 minutes. Exactly. We spent some time in the desert and then we came across the oasis of three goals and Stokes' misery to nourish us and replenish us. Uh, And I think that, you know, if you'd asked me before the game, would you take 70 minutes of shite to win the game 3-0 in the end, to uh, put a dent in their goal difference, to take three points off them, and for them to to kind of lose their shit a bit towards the end of the game. They weren't happy, were they? You could see it uh, in the in the tackle that led to the second penalty. There was a bit of a, a flare-up, wasn't there? Uh, at one point, Granit Xhaka, I think, involved. Joe Allen got a, a yellow card for a he tackle, and there was put. a bit of, yeah. bit of a little argy-bargy there, which, you know, I liked... I liked I liked when Shawcross came across and was all like, rah, rah, and then, you know, at some point in that small uh, little head of his, small tiny brain, he must have realized, oh, this is, this is so crushingly pointless. What am I even getting angry about here? What is, the, what is the meaning of all this? I'm losing, the team's losing, we're heading towards relegation. Why, why am I angry? Yeah, I mean, it's, if anything, it's a surprise it's taken him that long, but that's just... Uh, a a consequence of his cognitive deficiencies. I mean, any team (laughs) who sing those songs about Aaron Ramsey or what have you, I'm desperate to to see them go down. I have been for many years. I think we all have been praying for a Premier League that is stoke-free. And now, thankfully, 
uh, it seems that we are on the cusp of it. We just need the rest of the teams they play this season to put them away as efficiently as we did in that last 20 minutes. Absolutely. Uh, and hopefully yeah. we can bid them adieu. Yeah, that would be amazing. I don't know who they're playing. We should look at their fixtures here because I don't want to get too excited just yet. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I mean, in some ways, their Premier League campaign is of more interest to us than our Premier League campaign at this point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would, I would pay good money to see it happen. Okay. Oh, they're playing Spurs in their next game. Well... There's one, isn't it? What do we what do we do there? Do we hate Stoke more than Tottenham at this point? I mean, what 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 difference does another three points make to Tottenham at this stage? Whereas taking three points from Stoke would be would be a good thing, right? Oh, this is a double edged yeah. sword right here. I mean, maybe a draw is the best outcome there. I have to say, mm. I can't. I'm not sure I could either root for either team to win. Then they go away to West Ham. West um, Ham fighting for their lives a bit. They're down there, so. Yeah. Come on, Marco, Ar- oh, Marco Arnautovic. Arnautovic returning oh. as a West Ham. Well, it's at West Ham, but as a West Ham player facing his former teammates. Oh, do you know what I'd like to happen there is for uh, Arnautovic to score a couple of goals. And then while Shawcross is in the air going for a header, he pushes him over the advertising hoardings. I'd like to see that. Uh- yeah, yeah, yeah. And just at the other side of the advertising hoardings is like a portal to to hell or something. <laughs> it falls down. A moat full um, of piranhas. Yeah. <laughs> you could fit that in the London I Stadium as well, they, couldn't you? Yeah, yeah. I think they, I think there is one. I think that's why the fans are so far away from the pitch. <laughs> uh, that's what they're complaining about all the time. And then they've got Burnley and then they've got Liverpool. So Ooh. their run-ins actually, that's in April. That's a pretty tricky sequence of games. And then two massive games to end season. They host Crystal Palace, and then on the last day, they travel to Swansea. Ooh, that is tasty, isn't it? So, uh, yeah, look, it could happen, folks. It could happen. And uh, if we played a small part in making it happen, then uh, I think we can be rightly proud of our season and the effort that the chaps have put in to make it uh, make it a wonderful thing for us. You know, forget titles. Forget winning the Premier League trophy. That's... That's irrelevant. Any team can do that. We've done that in the past. But relegating Stoke, that's the real prize. Yeah, that's what that, that's there should be a trophy for that. I think, <laughs> I think all the other 19 or whatever it is, other the 17 teams that snap should be given a trophy and saying thank you for your contribution to English football uh for getting rid of Stoke. I mean, I yeah, I hope they go down and I hope they never come back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could be like some kind of magic ring, one ring to uh to uh, to put away the orcs, but uh, okay. Well, look, we focused a bit too much yeah. on on Stoke's misery there. We'll come back to it because I think it is something that we can take enjoyment from. Let's go back to the game, and I suppose we do have to talk about the first seventy minutes to a certain extent. Not not in any great depth, but just uh, team selection. What do you make of that? Well, I was uh, a little bit surprised to be a goal at first before the news broke that Petacek had an injury. I wondered if, you know, do you remember last week we talked about Arsene Wenger potentially changing it up, playing a spinner in the Premier League and yeah. Czech in the Europa League? I wondered if that would come to pass. And if I'm honest, still deep down, I'm kind of hoping that maybe in some weird way that because Czech was injured for this match, maybe Arsenal will go, well, you had your game of spinner, Czech can come back in. Um I don't think that's likely, but that's what my secret hope is. Mm. Beyond that, I'm trying to think what I thought of the team. Because Shelney was rested, as I kind of imagine he probably will be for most of the Premier League campaign from now on. Would you agree with that? It doesn't seem like he's 
he's going to play any games in the Premier League at this point. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think the uh, there was a story, wasn't there, where he's uh, rediscovered yoga. He's done. He's got to yoga, uh, and that's mm. helped his Achilles problems. But maybe his yoga classes are on Saturdays and Sundays. That would explain a lot. <laughs> <laughs> he's unavailable for the games. Yeah, look, I, I can see the I can see the logic in resting him for Europe. You know, if he is struggling or if there is any danger of missing him for Europe, then yeah, it, it makes some sense. Callum Chambers was the guy who got the nod uh, to come in. I thought he did okay. Uh, Mustafi was uh, an absolute disaster zone for the first ten minutes, wasn't he? With the ball, it was like, what are you yeah. seeing here? Sometimes you look at a player and go, what exactly are, what's happening in your world? <laughs> Sometimes you find yourself, uh, after some of Mustafi's bad games, kind of wondering, why did Arsenal buy this guy? What was, what was going on there? And I think part of it must just be that if you send a scout to watch a, a, a game of football where Mustafi is playing, he will definitely notice Mustafi. He's one of the most noticeable <laughs> defenders I've ever seen. And sometimes that can be really good because he's got this really aggressive style. Sometimes it can be really bad. But for a centre-half, he's a very eye-catching player. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, I mean, look, his his distribution was all over the place for the first 10, 15 minutes. But in the same time uh, period, he made a couple of good tackles and then really grew yeah. into the game, I thought. He made some really good tackles and interventions and interceptions. Uh, but it was just like, what is going on? I mean, those first 10 minutes, the I think the first 60 seconds or 90 seconds of the game, it was genuinely like watching a Sunday league game where every single player has been on the same stag night out till four o'clock in the morning doing Jaeger shots and puking into each other's fucking hats. Nobody looked like they could control the ball. It was like, oh my God, what is this round thing? My, What are these things at the end of my left feet? What do I do with these? It was bizarre to see the players just sort of bubble the ball around like a pack of a pack of drunken Sunday league hackers it was really weird and I think that set the tone certainly for the first half of the game it was uh, it was pretty dreadful it was really bad it, to be honest actually our performance reminded me a little bit of our performance against uh, Osterson's FK uh, in the Europa League fortunately I think just Stoke aren't as good as them really and weren't able to mm. take advantage I mean they, they had their moments but uh, yeah our, our, our focus was completely absent and I, I don't know I mean you know it's tempting isn't it um, the fact that our Premier League campaign is kind of uh, a dead duck as it were but I think as well you have to factor in because we've seen it so many times the influence of the international break uh, and I guess an unfamiliar 11 as well I mean that midfield of Elneny, Ramsey and Wilshire they're not necessarily accustomed to playing together but it was bad I mean I there were several times in the first half where I sort of gasped uh, I couldn't believe how, how sloppy we were in possession. Yeah, there was a lot of giving the ball away. And I think you're right, a better team than Stoke would have uh, taken advantage of that. But it was, you know, I, I, I'm not sure the unfamiliarity thing really is an explanation as to how bad we were. You know, Ramsey, Jacques Elneny, or Ramsey, uh, Wilshire Elneny, you know, they're not complete strangers. It's not like they're being put in and being made to play together for the first time. I know they don't usually all play together, but they know each other as players. Um, you know, it was it was very strange. Uh, Bellerin down the right-hand side, we give him the ball, he looks in front of him, there's nobody there. He turns back and yeah. plays the ball inside. It, you know, it must be frustrating for Hector Bellerin to be Hector Bellerin as much as it is to watch Hector Bellerin play at this moment in time because 
he's being asked to do not an impossible job, but, you know, when we talk about a lack of incision or a lack of uh, thrust when it comes to our attacking play, is it not summed up for you every time when Bellerin gets it and he looks and he's there and there's uh, the only thing he could do is attempt to dribble past two defenders knock the ball and try and use his pace and like eight times out of ten that's not going to work or he turns back and plays the ball backwards or inside and that's literally all he's got available to him I mean what we would give for somebody to combine with Bellerin down that right hand side because you could see when Lacazette came on for example uh, there was a bit more movement in the front three and it was I think Bellerin's pass for Lacazette that led to the second penalty yeah I did feel for Bellerin yesterday I mean it is like he's been told, you know, you're playing right back, right midfield and right wing. And he has yeah. got the stamina and the pace to cover that ground. But you're right, the combination play, that's actually one of Bellerin's best assets as well. I mean, you think about his pace, but his passing over yeah. short range is very good. And his ability to play one-twos and time his runs is a big facet of his game. And without players close to you, without those options of combinations nearby, you just can't do that. And yeah, I, I thought he had a really tricky time yesterday, but it was a, a consequence of the system and the setup as much as mm. as much as his own individual play, which was, I think, below par, like most of the out on that. Pitch. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sort of I'm not making excuses, but you know, when your options are that limited, it's got to play a part yeah. in in how your performance is perceived. I think we'd one shot on target in the first half, and that was a very tame Mustafi header that went to. Uh, straight into the arms of Butland. But then after mm. Shakiri hit the post, we kind of woke up. There was a shot from uh, Aubameyang went through. At, at this point, Lacazette had come on for Welbeck, and I think that made a difference. I think he he it's made a significant them. difference to the way that we played. Like, uh, Aubameyang moved out left, and it was very interesting to see. Ozil dropped a little bit deeper. The the chance we had almost straight away after Shakiri hit the post was Ozil in I think in our own half spotting a run of Aubameyang coming in from the left hand side. It was a beautiful pass from Ozil. Uh, Aubameyang was through. Butland saved in the end, but at last there was a bit of incision into our play in the way that we were uh, trying to get at Stoke. Yeah, and it was interesting, wasn't it? I mean, a lot of people I saw on Twitter up in arms about Aubameyang moving out to the left wing. And as soon, almost as soon as he did, uh, he got that chance running through on goal, which mm. he'd not been in the game at all prior to that. So, I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting one. I suppose we'll talk about that in a minute, how how Lacazette and Aubameyang might dovetail going forward. But I do think that the substitution had a big impact on our play. It's interesting you, you think of Aubameyang as a striker with really good movement. But actually, once Lacazette came on and played centrally, he was the guy who stretched the defence, really, and, and was pulling centre-halves out of position, making those runs in behind. And and this time, perhaps more so than back in the autumn, those runs were being found and were being looked for. So that was an encouraging sign, too. He looked very sharp, I thought. And I like that run that he went on, actually, from from deep. You know, I think that was when Joe Allen got booked, wasn't it? When Lacazette was kind of taking a few people on, showing yeah. off his close control, and a couple of Stoke guys came in to hack him. I, I thought he had a, a really good little cameo. Um, and yeah, I, I, I uh, look. I, I, I was a bit disappointed that Danny Welbeck had a pretty poor D- game. Danny Welbeck kind of game. Yeah, he did. I mean, it was kind of a bit like his performance against Milan, only without the penalty and the tapping. <laughs> and uh, I, no, I, I because I, the reason I, I feel like that is I kind of feel like all our strikers 
play a bit better with a second forward alongside them. Mm. Um, and I'd like to carry that into the Europa League, really. If Lacazette is going to play, I do, I do think there is still a case for Danny Welbeck to play alongside him. Because I just think that having two forwards on the field, even if one is effectively stationed out wide, does give defenders a bit more to think about and lessen some of the, the pressure on the guy who is playing through the middle. Yeah, I mean, he came off and Arsene Wenger said he had a back injury and they were talking about Welbeck being uncomfortable from very early on on the commentary as if he'd picked up a, a knock somewhere along the way. So yeah. maybe, maybe that was a contributory factor. But, you know, it's hard to look beyond that Danny Welbeck performance as being anything out of the ordinary. You know, it 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 seems to me that that's kind of what you get from him more often than not rather mm-hmm. than something better you know um yeah. no absolutely absolutely i suppose that what what's quite interesting about welbeck is that to a certain extent i think in in cases the manager will be prepared to accept that because of other things he yeah. brings. For example, if it's a, a certain game, he might be like, well, I, I require his energy or I require his defensive discipline. Yes, I know he's not going to dribble past three players and score or even put that volley away, which was a fairly decent chance that fell to him inside the box. Yeah, Ramsey was still... brilliant from Ramsey, actually. Great control from yeah. Ramsey. Um, yeah, look... That was a good chance, wasn't it? It was, it was. Um, and in a game, a few chances, when you get one like that for, for an established forward, you'd like him to do... You'd like him to do a bit better, but uh, we we did build some momentum. I think it's fair to say that after the 70 minutes of insufferable shite, we did build some momentum and we, we started to have a go. Uh, there was a bit more drive, a bit more um, risk-taking in our play because we knew we had to score. People were prepared to run with the ball a little bit, to run off the ball a bit more, and that's where the penalty came from. What, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I have to say, when I saw it in real time, I was like, that's absolutely nailed on penalty uh mm. with the benefit of replays i don't think it was but nor do i give a shit <laughs> yeah i mean i don't think it's a penalty i think it's a very generous award if we use the old the podcast rule of how would you feel if it was given against your team uh you'd be pretty upset mm. about that one um but it wasn't it was given against stoke and frankly <laughs> they've had it coming so yeah i mean it's not a penalty the, the, the in fact the way Ursel's leg moves is quite unnatural. He sort of almost seems to kick out and round and sort of plant his foot behind the player. It's and the, and the player seems to get the ball as well. I mean, it's a really. I can see why the referee made the decision, but it's a very big call given that he's relatively unsighted. But you won't find me complaining about it. No, not at all. You know, um, it, it is one of those. I think that puts a lie to this idea that. Uh, you know, lots of people, when penalties are given against us, like to point to this great refereeing conspiracy uh, that exists to to damage Arsenal. And, you know, you have to look at yesterday's decision and put it in that context. You know, sometimes decisions I, I, go for yeah. you and sometimes they don't. I feel like after the, all the well-back controversy against Milan, I, I feel obliged to ask, is, th- is that a dive or is that just falling over? I don't think it was a dive. I don't think it was a dive. He knew the guy was coming in from behind. Um... There was, I think, some contact. Uh, it was one of those where maybe he he uh, he clipped the back of his heels or he kicked. You know when you go to kick the ball and you kick the person behind you, that kind of stuff. I don't think it was uh, a dive per se, but I do think the guy got the, the slightest touch on the ball. Um, yes, I'd be unhappy if it was given against us, but I don't think I would put that one down to a player diving. I don't think it was, I don't think it was a dive. Um, mm. 
But anyway, fuck Stoke. I don't either, no. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, even if it was, to be fair, I wouldn't be complaining very much at all. We saw what happened after the Milan game. But no, I don't think it is a dive. I think it's a a collision uh, and one that the referee, fortunately, gave in our favour. Absolutely. So Aubameyang stepped up, took the penalty. Were you in any way surprised that he took it? Or has the pecking order changed? Because I think uh, Lacazette was established as the number one penalty taker this season. Uh, but he'd only just come on, I guess. And mm, Well, as well, I think, you know, uh, Aubameyang's got a good penalty record, decent enough penalty record with Dortmund. I was a little bit... Uh, what can I should I say? I suppose we've only seen him take one penalty for Arsenal and he, 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 he saved. It wasn't a particularly good one against mm. Man City. So it wasn't quite heart in mouth because I think there was nothing in this game that was particularly heart in mouth. But I think, you know, I had some concerns, but it was a very, very decent penalty. We scored another another penalty, another good penalty like against Milan. So mm. that was good to see. And I'll tell you what, you can go was really well taken as well. I really like the way you dispatched that one. Yeah, I mean, that came after a couple of shots. I think it was an Ozil shot saved. Mkhitaryan had had a shot saved. You know, we were putting some mm. pressure on. The corner came in, skidded across to him, and he did take it very well, didn't he? It was one of those where he really had to adjust his body shape quite quickly, uh, and the finish into the, the far corner was really excellent. It was. I mean, it's sharp contrast, I suppose, to to Welbeck's effort from a similar position on the volley, and he, he really dispatched that nicely. You mentioned Mkhitaryan there came on and while I understand why Lacazette is obviously attracting the most attention I actually thought he made quite a big difference all the subs to be honest even Shaka I thought brought yeah. some stability and a slightly better passing to our midfield uh, and you would expect all of those players to start on Thursday so let's choose to look upon that as a, a good omen yeah 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 for sure okay and then we had the uh, the second penalty no question in my mind that that was a penalty I don't know why they were complaining. I thought there was this kind of strange delay, wasn't there, where nobody was quite sure whether he was giving a penalty or not. And yeah. I was looking at it going, that is the most blatant foul in the box I've seen for ages. You know, beyond actually hacking somebody's legs, the way he threw the shoulder or pushed him with the, you know, it was just, how could it not be a penalty? I don't understand why they were confused as to whether or not there was a penalty being given and why they were complaining about it is, a, is another thing entirely. It was a, it was a really, really frustrated challenge, wasn't it, from the defender? It was just like, ah, oh, fuck this. You know, I'm going to go yeah. in and, you know, anywhere, anywhere on... Anywhere else on the pitch, nobody even questions whether or not that's a free kick. You just go, yeah, okay. Uh, but in the box, it was just, uh, it was stupid. Um, and thank I, I, you. I wonder if that pause was just like disbelief at how how rash and how crazy what he'd done was. Mm. I mean, it was just the most, it was born so purely, as you say, out of frustration and anger. Um, yeah, there can't be any any argument at all, really. So... When that was awarded, I can't remember if it was quite in stoppage time, but it was certainly close to it, 88th mm. minute, something like that. We, what were you expecting? Were you expecting Aubameyang to step up? I have to say I had a nagging feeling maybe he, maybe it would be Lacazette for that one. I, I, I expected Lacazette to take, or Aubameyang to take it because he'd scored twice, was on a mm. hat-trick, and I can't think of any other situation that I've seen where a striker will give up the chance for a hat-trick uh, to give it to a teammate, right? And I don't think even if, uh, you know, let's say Aaron Ramsey had scored twice, would he have taken the penalty maybe to get a hat-trick? You know, players are like that. When they have that chance to go for a hat-trick, they'll usually take it. So I did expect Aubameyang to take it. Uh, I have no problem, though, in him giving it to Lacazette. 
Yeah, I, I tell you what as well. I mean, it's very generous, certainly, and uh, I think it's great for the team and great for Lacazette. And yeah. You could see from his celebration how much he relished it. But I do wonder as well if it was in Aubameyang's mind, you know, I've taken a penalty already in this game. I, I feel like this might just be a hunch. I don't have the stats to uh, back this up. I feel like you frequently will see a player score a penalty and then if the game goes to the shootout, his penalty will be a bit less confident sometimes or the keeper will save it. Sometimes a player makes a decision before a game of if I get a penalty, I'm going to that corner. If they get a second penalty, a bit of doubt enters their mind yeah. sometimes. So I wonder as well, was that maybe an element in what he was thinking? You know, he thought, well, I've had my penalty. I don't want to confuse him anymore. We've got another good penalty taker. But yeah, maybe it was it was it was encouraging because Aubameyang's only got, you know, however many games it is now half a dozen games in which to score goals this season. So for him to shoot the chance of a hat-trick was, uh, was yeah, surprising, but I think a positive and shows that he's pulling for the team, really, because it's going to help Lacazette in the Europa League. And that's a competition Aubameyang can't even take part in because of UEFA's stupid rule that they've now overturned. Yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, I, I don't understand why he's being criticised for. You know, th- this idea yeah. that somehow... Oh, Aubameyang is not ruthless enough or focused enough on scoring goals because he's done something generous towards a teammate, which will benefit the team, benefit Lacazette, and benefit the team as a whole, right? I don't understand why that's there uh, for criticism. I just I don't get it. Uh, if you're a greedy striker who is only interested in the amount of goals you score at the end of the season, regardless of whether your team succeeds or not, then fine. That's your lookout, and you're perfectly entitled to take that penalty. But I think it it does show a team ethic on behalf of uh, Obama Yang. Uh, he knew his teammate was just back from injury. He'd had surgery, could do with a goal. The team could do with Lacazette getting back on the score sheet, uh, particularly uh, as we've got important games in Europe coming up. So, you know, that, that I think, is something to be praised, not to be criticised. Mm. And, and, and hang on a second here. Who are you talking about? You're talking about one of the most prolific strikers in Europe. Over the last mm. few seasons, 141 goals in 210 games or something for Dortmund. Are you telling me that this guy does not live for scoring goals? I mean, it's absurd to criticize him uh, uh, or to suggest that he's in some way an inferior striker because he's not, uh, he didn't take that penalty. It's just, it's beyond stupid. I can't find the words to express how stupid it was. I mean, Arsene Wenger, he says, um, it shows the state of our society that people, uh, when people are generous, we're surprised. And he went on to say that yeah. when yeah, when strikers are generous, you're even more surprised because we have this idea of strikers being absolutely single-minded, absolutely greedy for goals. And you, yeah, of course, that's a quality to have when you're a top striker, you know, to have that uh, desire to score at all times. Of course, it's a great quality to have. But to be able to step back from that and say, okay, there is a bigger picture that maybe if I do this thing, it will be better for uh, for the club. It will, it'll be better for Lacazette. It'll be better for the team. It, it'll be better for me because, you know, for the most part, I think the reaction of, of Arsenal fans to Aubameyang's decision to give it to Lacazette has been hugely positive. Yeah, I think it has. And, and to be honest, if anything, it shows a level of security, I think, in his performances and his own goal scoring. 
you know, if he hadn't scored going into this game for Arsenal, maybe he would have thought, oh, I need to get my tally up. But he's got five goals in six Premier League mm. games. For a guy who's brand new in this league, that is a, a great record and about as much return as you could expect on that signing. So maybe he's not too worried about his personal tally. Maybe he thinks, you know what, I'm doing OK. And he's made a gesture to a teammate that I think will have meant a great deal to Lacazette and could mean a great deal to Lacazette going into that Moscow game on Thursday. And the other thing to say is that Arsene Wenger's best teams, I think, have always been characterised by that kind of unselfishness from the forward players. We've seen it taken to absurd extremes in the past with, you know, Henri and Perez and their kind of penalty gaff where he tried to <laughs> pass it to each other and all that kind of thing. But, you know, I, I, there's so many occasions when with the Invincibles and the great Arsenal sides where a player would go through on goal, but there would be another man square who had an easier chance. So they would roll it across. Henri did it all the time because he wasn't worried about, he loved scoring goals, but he was pretty confident he was going to get them anyway. And yeah, I see that sign of confidence as a, a positive thing. Absolutely. I mean, re- remember when, uh, didn't Henri have this thing that if he was fouled, he wouldn't take the penalty. So Perez would yeah. take the penalties, you know, uh, and look, nobody loved scoring as much as Thierry Henri, but he was a tremendous assist maker as well. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that's a positive thing. Anyone who thinks what a Bamiyang did yesterday was a negative can really just go get in the fucking sea because it is dense. It's just absurd. Mm. Um, so that, you know, put the uh, the icing on the cake, I think, very much. A 3-0 win over Stoke. We put a dent in their goal difference. We got ourselves back to winning ways. It wasn't perhaps the kind of overall accomplished performance that we had hoped for on return, but maybe we could put a bit down to uh, just coming back after the international break, first game back. You know, it's not unusual for us uh, after our first game back in an international break to be somewhat below par. We've seen that in the past, even with better teams than this one. Yeah, that's right. And I think, I mean, apparently uh, with the Watford game and then this game, this is the first time that we've scored three or more goals and kept a clean sheet in consecutive Premier League games since October 2015. Wow. So that's, yeah, it's been a long time coming. A couple of comfortable wins like that back to back. So mm. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to look at the positives of a, a clean sheet and get excited for Thursday because, you know, we're all about the Europa League now. So how are you feeling? I mean, look, how are you feeling about it? We can talk about our performance. I think we've got some questions about the overall performance and I'm not uh, suggesting, for example, uh, that the, uh, the it was just the interlull or coming back after the international break that was uh, the problem for us. I think it, it, it's a deeper rooted problem than that. But just for today or just for this part of the podcast anyway, I just want to enjoy the, the three points, the win and, uh, you know, fuck Stoke and let's laugh at Stoke mm. a little bit um haha uh but how are you how are you feeling then about Thursday because had we gone into that game off the back of a disappointing performance and a disappointing result you know I think it could have been I think it could make our lives a bit more difficult yeah I, I think there's still a degree of trepidation for me going into that game because I don't know a lot about Moscow and I don't know necessarily what we're going to get but I can guarantee it's going to be a better side than than Stoke and a sterner test um I I think you mentioned this on your blog this morning but there is kind of an x factor to this and I really hope I don't think it necessarily will be the case but I hope that the Emirates Stadium is a bit more full and with a bit more atmosphere in it than there has been at the last few Mm. Premier League games and even to an extent the Milan home tie I just feel like if this feels like an occasion, the team are, are more likely to rise to it. Whereas if there's that kind of passive atmosphere around the ground, I 
fear that that might creep into the players' performances as it did for the first 70 minutes against Stoke. We need to be absolutely focused and on our game because, you know, going to going to Russia is historically tricky for Arsenal. So it would be fantastic if we could put this, not put this game to bed, but at least build up a substantial lead in this first leg. Yeah, I mean, I think... Uh... You know, it is a quarterfinal, a European quarterfinal. Uh, I think the the team will be perhaps a bit more focused on this game than they were on the Stoke game, which isn't to say they you know didn't want to win or anything like that. But there is an occasion here. There is something to play for in this competition. And I think that will be reflected in the way that the team hopefully performs, the way the team is put out. You know, there are tickets available. I'm looking at the Arsenal website right now. There are tickets available for this game still. So if you're interested and you don't normally get along, um, you know, it's there for you if you want to go. And I do hope that, uh, you know, for the fans, uh, it, it is something to hang on to this season. It is uh, a big part of what being a football fan is all about, is supporting your team, of course, through good times and bad times. And we can talk about that maybe in the second part with questions. But, you know, it's there. There's excitement when you're in a competition, which at the end of it uh, has a tangible prize or that you're still playing for. And we're still playing for something in the Europa League. So I do hope that we get, uh, you know, a bit better from the team and uh, that that we see perhaps in the stadium the excitement of the competition reflected in the atmosphere because it was a very strange atmosphere yesterday. Yeah, I mean, we're really, really into that end of season, last day feeling about things. And, yeah. you know, we're only just out of March. It, it is odd and it's not something we're necessarily accustomed to. I, almost as a consequence of uh, good, the bad things as well as good things. I mean, it's not like in recent years we've been in second or third and mm. known that would be a fate. You know, in the last five, ten years, there have been so many fights for fourth, haven't there, that have kept our Premier League season competitive and alive right until the last minute. Um, not so really this year. We kind of know what we're going to get come the final day. We kind of know what our league of position is going to be. But uh, it does lead to a very curious atmosphere and not one that's enormous fun, but the Europa League provides some relief from that as long as we are in it and really it is our season now so yeah I hope everyone kind of rallies a bit before Thursday and uh, we can kind of get the Emirates Stadium rocking and I think it's incumbent on the players to help do that too they need to be a lot better than they were on Sunday afternoon for sure of course okay well look we're going to leave it there for part one I think probably what we should do is just take another moment to laugh at Stoke. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we'll come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. This is John Grills from the Creepy Podcast. With Best Christmas Ever on AMC+, Plus, every day feels like Christmas morning. From new holiday favorites like Elf and National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation to modern iconic family classics like The Polar Express and The Year Without a Santa Claus, you can spend the holiday season opening only the good stuff. Plus, you get a stocking stuffed with highly acclaimed AMC series like The Walking Dead and Mad Men, new series like Gangs of London and The Walking Dead World Beyond, and you're also getting your favorite iconic Christmas movies without having to search. AMC Plus is available on all your devices. Sign up today at amcplus.com. AMC Plus, only the good stuff. This holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. 
Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is the part of the show where we answer questions you send to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at Arsblog and also on the Arsblog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the Arsblog. Before we get into them, just want to tell you about something that's coming up for Arsblog members on our Patreon site uh, tomorrow. Uh, an episode of My Arse, uh, the podcast in which I talk to uh, somebody about their life and times as an Arsenal fan. I will be talking to actor Mark Strong. So there. Mm. He's cool guy, isn't he, Mark Strong? He is. He's very much a Hollywood mainstay these days. So that's pretty cool. Was mm. it a fun chat to him? It was fun chat. So we talked about like uh, growing up uh, in Islington, why he became an Arsenal fan. Uh, we talked about his favourite player. We talked about all kinds of things. He tells a really very uh, funny and strange anecdote, which involves Alan Smith. Uh, which uh, I can't even begin okay. to explain. And people can get access to that by subscribing to be an Arsblog member on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Arsblog. It costs just five euros a month plus VAT if you're in the EU. That's it. Think about all the things you can do with a fiver and you could sign up and get all this uh, delicious extra content. We'll be doing uh, another phone-in show soon as well. So lots to come. Mm. There's a brilliant article last week. Uh, Tim Stillman put up a, a long read. It's about four or 5,000 word article on 10, uh, 10 or 11 games that changed Arsene Wenger's tactical thinking, the way he sets his team up. So that's well worth a read as well. Lots of other stuff on there. So do check it out at patreon.com forward slash arseblog. So let's get on with questions. I'm going to okay. go first because there's a number of people asking about this particular thing. And that, of course, is Lacazette and Aubameyang playing together. So uh, to give a, a kind of idea of the way people are, are looking at this, Emmanuel Lane, who's at Tribo King or Tribo King, says, Wenger uh, hints at pairing Lacazette and Aubameyang should be a positive. He also hinted Lacazette number nine and Aubameyang wide. Has the old man lost his marbles or is he just taking the piss now for the fun of it? Meanwhile, Marty, who is at Silent Gooner, says, a lot of people seem scared that Wenger will put Aubameyang left and Lacazette center in a top three. Why? It seems to be the best way to use our best players in the same formation. We won't change to a 4-4-2 anytime soon, and Aubameyang's pace could be deadly from the left. Yeah, it's an interesting situation, isn't it? Because you've got two £50 million strikers, and in an ideal world, you want those in the same team, I guess, to maximise your, your goal-scoring potential. I think that a 4-4-2, as we know it, is relatively unlikely. Well, I think it's highly unlikely. Mm. And I think a large part of that is down to the presence of Mesut Ozil in this team. You know, they've invested a huge amount of money in Ozil. And I just don't think that he's a player who necessarily you associate with playing in a midfield four in any position, really. You could push him out wide, but why are you paying 350 grand a week to yeah. put someone wide in a 4-4-2 and support his fullback? I just don't think that's a particularly likely outcome. With the Aubameyang thing, as to why people are upset about playing on the left, I think there are kind of two camps and they're quite distinct. There are some people who are like, well, he did play on the left for Dortmund and Saint-Étienne, but mm. he wasn't particularly great there. 
when Lewandowski left and he moved to the centre that he exploded and became the awesome goal scorer that that we've paid money for. Yeah. But I also think there's probably a little bit of an element of he's our shiny new signing. Um, why are you putting him out of position? You know, the, this thing of like, well, when a new player arrives, we want to see them scoring the goals. We want to see them taking the headlines because they're new. Even if he's only six months newer than Lacazette, uh, I think there is that thing where the, the signings often take precedence. So I think there's a little bit of that involved in it too, a little bit of frustration at not seeing him, you know, in, in, in the role that we want to see him in. But it's a tricky one with Lacazette and Aubameyang because Steve Bold spoke about Lacazette, didn't he? In the, yeah. In his highly eventful press conference, thriller minutes press conference that he gave <laughs> uh, before the uh, before the Stoke game, uh, and he spoke about Lacazette as a, a nine and a half. You know, not quite a number nine, a nine and a half. And I suppose a, another player in the Premier League you would compare that to is Firmino, say at Liverpool, who plays as a, a centre forward ostensibly, but really he's pressing people, he's dropping deep, he's linking the play and Liverpool's attacking threat comes as much from the wide players making diagonal runs centrally. I mean, Mo Salah is playing wide but he's scoring more goals than anybody else and that's partly because he's got Firmino as that central fulcrum. And when you look at the the qualities of uh, Lacazette and Aubameyang, you can see why Arsene Wenger might think, well, Lacazette is the guy I'm going to ask hold the ball centrally to interplay with others, to be the guy knocking one-twos with Ozil. And maybe Aubameyang can escape the attention of Marcus yeah. cutting from the left. Do, do you, what I would say is, go on. we've not seen this from the start of a game. Mm. It's been a kind of emergency option so far. So quite how serious Arsene Wenger is about it, we won't know, I think, until he actually uses it from kickoff. Yeah, I mean, to, it, people talk about using the two of them and, uh, and using Aubameyang from the left, and that's certainly what Arsene Wenger said in his press conference yesterday. He said he played there for Dortmund, he played there for Saint-Étienne. Um, but it strikes me, perhaps, that if we are going to use the two of them, and if one of them has to be the wide player, then Lacazette is probably more suited to be that player. Does I mean does does that not in some way solve the problem? Because I think uh, for me, Obama Yang probably isn't technically as good as Lacazette on the ball. Like when he's in the box, and we could see what a great finish it was for his second goal. I mean, I think it's something that Lewis uh, Ambrose wrote in the the tactical piece he did about Obama Yang when when we signed him. Is that um, when you play him out wide, he's obviously got great pace, but he's not perhaps as accomplished a footballer as Thierry Henry would be coming in from those positions, right? Mm. So Thierry Henry, technically a brilliant player, very, very creative, whereas Aubameyang has thrived in the last three or four seasons since moving centrally and since scoring, uh, you know, it's allowed him to score a lot of goals. Could we not keep him there and use Lacazette as that kind of wide player, that wide forward who can... Uh, get on the ball a bit more, do a bit more with the ball, but he still has that penalty boxing instinct or that ability to make runs into the box. I mean, that's where the penalty came from yesterday. It was Lacazette making a run that Bellerin's body got in the box uh, and got fouled. I think it's going to have to be a case of kind of trying trying it both ways. But both times that they've both been on the field, it's been Aubameyang who's gone wide. It, it also happened against Spurs, didn't it, at, at yeah. Wembley? Uh, and it was it was him who was shunted out there. I think that Arsene Wenger has a, a preference for centre-forwards with really good close control who can take the ball under pressure and find teammates. I mean, if, if Olivier Giroud, of course 
was a great example of that. But if you go back, I think Robin Van Persie was another who could receive the ball in very tight situations back to goal and retain it. Uh, and Theo Walcott is an example of a wide player who is a bit less technically accomplished, but but very capable of getting in behind. And I wonder if without Walcott, without Alexis, that well, that is definitely something we're lacking in wide areas, that kind of blistering pace. Yeah. And I wonder if 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 Wenger feels that Aubameyang is the guy to offer that. I mean, it seems that his preference is for this way round. I, I do understand that because, as I say, I think Lacazette can do that kind of Firmino job of linking the play. The question is how much it nullifies... Aubameyang's threat and how much of past threat is that penalty box presence you know that being there in the six yard box scoring headers scoring tap-ins we do kind of potentially lose that and that's a lot to lose from a 60 million pound player but I can't see him going to a, a conventional 4-4-2 can you? No I can't but I can also uh, I, I want to see our two 50 million pound strikers or forwards in the team you know I think mm. we were markedly better when both of them were on the pitch yesterday so if you ask me if we're going to play Aubameyang up front uh, or Lacazette or Welbeck wide, I want Lacazette rather than Welbeck. Um, mm. You know, you wonder, is there a way of maybe perhaps interchanging them during a game? Uh, I don't know if that's something that could work. I would just worry a little bit that you lose too much of what Aubameyang can bring you if you play him out wide. Um, and I do feel like if we're going to play both of them, that Lacazette is, is as Steve Bold said, he was surprised by how good he was. He could be a number 10. So, you know, maybe that is maybe that is the thinking. Um, but we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. Obviously, Arsene Wenger sees it a little bit differently. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I would say is I don't get the impression particularly that there's a, a grand plan at work here. You know, it does feel a little like Aubameyang was in a not panic by, but an emergency signing prompted by the departure of Alexis and partly by Lacazette's own poor form at that period. Let's not forget, I mean, opinion of Lacazette has been uh, radically changed during his absence to injury and his subsequent decent comeback. But at the time he got injured, he had just was being castigated for missing two very presentable chances against Spurs. He had one goal in 13 games. So Mm. he's got a way to go to, to prove his value to the starting 11. But I loved seeing them in combination. I loved having that much goal-scoring potential on the field. I do think that, as usual, sorry, what I mean is from week to week, we do not have enough goal-scorers in the side. Yeah, yeah. We talk about Aaron Ramsey as a goal-scorer, but really, since that one brilliant season, uh, when when was it, 2013-14, something Mm. like that, he hasn't really been a particularly reliable goal-scorer. Mesut Ozil, not particularly reliable either. Jack Wilshere almost never scores, and that seems to pass entirely without comment so yeah I, I liked having them both in the sides and I think I'd be interested to see it both ways but I can understand having uh, Lacazette as the fulcrum just because he is that bit more yeah. technically capable uh, I suppose it, it will only be something we see in the Premier League yeah. I guess well that's the thing I think uh, as the Europa League continues perhaps there might be a need to not protect, but to rest key players for our, yeah. for our European games. And that might mean we do Premier League without uh, Ozil, without uh, Ramsey, without Lacazette, without Koscielny, for example. So you have these four key players fit and fresh for the Europa League games. And I think that will be part of the thinking as well uh, for Arsene Wenger. So we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see. We'll wait and see. Okay, I wonder if you can help with this question. It's from Ali Stables, who's at Ali Stables 1. And Ali asks... Is there a greater meaning behind Ospina getting briefly injured, in inverted commas, 
every time he plays. <laughs> I don't know, but you're wait. It's like you're just waiting for it in every single game. There'll be a collision of some kind, and he'll rub his head or he'll lie down and rub it. I don't know what it is. I just don't. Maybe he, uh, like Mustafi, wants to be noticed a bit. It was quite enough day. Not enough cameras on him yeah. for a while. I don't know. I don't know. But the frequency with which it happens, I know he's a goalkeeper and, you know, the the potential for a painful collision is a bit more, um, is a bit greater than for, for any other position, perhaps. But I, I, I can't shed any light on it other than perhaps Ospina is targeting a, a career in acting afterwards and is using this as a, as a kind of portfolio building platform i mean there's no consistency about when it happens in games is there? it's not like he always does it when we're leading it's not a purely time buying exercise i haven't noticed i must say no i mean i, I don't know what the point of it is but uh it, it just happens a lot doesn't it it is one of those yeah. it is one of those things but um uh yeah he's I, just I, a I vulnerable man he's a vulnerable guy Maybe and, you know, he likes to have a little a little lie down every now and again. Now, I can't blame him for that. Maybe he's very sensitive. Maybe he's got really sensitive skin or something, you know. I don't know. Maybe he has, like, some sort of disorder where he's, he, he just feels pain more than other people. That's actually quite a frightening prospect. Yeah, yeah. Okay, here's a question from uh, Clive, who's at Clive PAFC. Um, did you want to keep going on Ospina? Uh, a little bit, but then I thought it's probably not a good idea. Yeah, just leave him where he is, lying on the floor. Lying on the floor. We'll come back to him. Gary Loon's over there, or Colin Loon's over there. He'll yeah. he'll sort him out. He'll uh, be there a while. Yeah, he will. Uh, and if he's not there now, he'll be there again at some point in the future, very near future. Um, sure. Here's a Clive asks, uh, are Arsenal playing a brand of football that scares no one? Everything we do is slow, old and lacks directness. It suits our main men, Ozil, Ramsey, Wenger, which makes me ask, are we trapped in our own dated philosophy? Are Arsenal fans ready to accept our failings? I question this and say no. Our reaction is to protect our favourites when we should be questioning our favourites and not just focusing focusing on the manager who we all know is past his best. Ooh. Thanks, Clive. That's an easy one. <laughs> um, maybe David Espina's narcoleptic. That's my answer. <laughs> it is a tricky one, isn't it? Yeah, you know, um, yeah. I think that the, the overall point, right, about the way that we play, it's football that scares nobody. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Mm. Yeah. There's there's no question in that. What's we, I think we are a little bit trapped in the past because we have the idea of Arsenal as this uh, attacking team or attractive team to watch. And that's not really borne out by what we see on the pitch. And I think we talk about the values of the club often in terms of the off-field values, the class with which we do things. But I think our on-field values are perhaps a little bit outdated. You know, the way that we want to see football played or we aspire to see our football played, certainly the way Arsene Wenger aspires to see his team play, is not really the manner in which the very best teams play anymore. I mean, even Manchester City, you know, Arsene Wenger spoke about jazz. Well, Arsene, sorry, Filippo Clare, rather. I often get Filippo Clare and Arsene Wenger. Filippo, they're one and the same, basically. They are. So I think they're brothers. But Filippo Clare described Arsene Wenger's best teams as playing a kind of jazz football. But I don't think you could ascribe that to Manchester City's team. I think it's far more rigorous in its approach. I think there's, there's so much more... Uh, a finely tuned orchestra. Yeah, that's a, perhaps a better analogy. And I, I agree with Clive that maybe we are 
holding ourselves to a set of ideals that are outdated, but those are the ideals of our manager. So I think you come back to the point about, well, is the manager a little bit a manager from a different era? And I think that's sort of unquestionable that he, he mm. just fundamentally is. And, 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 and Arsene, that's not ageism. Well, look, I mean, the other thing I think is about questioning the players that we love. And I don't think you can say that Mesut Ozil and Aaron Ramsey, for example, are players who go unquestioned. To, to many, they're divisive. You know, people love Ozil and love Ramsey, and there are people who dislike Ozil and dislike Ramsey intensely. So I don't know that there's this collective idea that we're protecting the players that, that we love. My opinion is that if we want to play good football again, I think we've got to get a new manager. I think the way that Arsene wants to play is is uh, is muddled. If we're going to go back to the, um, to the musical analogy, it is just basically a load of us with our trumpets out going... And every so often we'll play some notes in harmony and it works very nicely. But a lot of the time it is just a crescendo of trumpets and uh, hot air and uh, bad sounding wind. And I think that was summed up in perhaps the first 70 minutes of what we saw yesterday. I think if we want to build and if we want to rebuild and if we want to get back to playing a kind of identifiable style of football, we've got to keep those best players. We've got to keep Ozil. We've got to keep Ramsey and you know build around those players, find a way to make it work. That's the job of a manager is is to uh, look at what he's got in his orchestra and make it a, a, an orchestra, right? And look at, you know, the instruments that he's got and, and create something from it. So for me, it's impossible to look beyond Arsene Wenger in, in that regard. Um, and until such time as that changes, I think we're going to sort of muddle on through with the kind of football that we play. That's it. Yeah, I think that we, we often look at the first 11 and we look for the change that can be made there or the signing that can be made to solve this team's problems. Uh, and I think that really it requires a, a more radical overhaul or a less radical overhaul, depending on how you look at it. I mean, it's ultimately changing one man, one job. Yeah. Um, but I think that, that that is what what needs to happen. Speaking of our favourites and I suppose the controversy or, or, or debate over some of them, uh, Matt Scarborough, who's at Scarborough Matt on Twitter, says, how likely is it that we lose Rambo this summer? I see him as an Arsenal legend, one of our best players, and worry that the way he's appreciated by the fans may contribute to his exit. What do you think about Aaron Ramsey? We are now perilously close to that one year from expiry situation we were in with Alexis and Ozil last summer. Mm, and the situation that we're in with Jack Wilshire now. Um, mm. I would like to say I'm confident, but I'm not. I, I hope that Arsenal are doing what they can to keep Aaron Ramsey at the club. And I think what that should be is, is some kind of parity with players like Mkhitaryan and Aubameyang because of the yeah. the contribution that he makes. I mean, I think he's seven or eight goals this season, eight assists. He's our most productive midfield player. He was our man of the match yesterday. Uh, you know, we have a collection of midfielders who are, what's the word I'm going to use here? I guess you would say uninspiring. That would be a diplomatic way of putting it, right? In terms of what they contribute and what they can bring to a team. They all have various qualities, but when it comes to end product, we don't have too much of that. Xhaka will get you the mm -hmm. odd goal. Elneny won't get you any goals, but he's a useful squad player. I can see that. And, uh, you know, I had no issue with his, with his uh, contract renewal. Jack Wilshire, you know, I, I don't know exactly what you get from Jack. You don't get very many goals. You don't get very many assists. 
I think yesterday he looked sluggish and well off the pace, and this was perhaps a consequence of the injury that he had going into the uh, going into the game. You know, he didn't play for England yeah. despite being called. Maybe that's what it was, but. You know, I, I find it hard not to look at Jack Wilshere and think that his race is is run when it comes to Arsenal. So can you go out in a summer and buy three midfield players? Two midfield players maybe is a stretch. I don't think you can. Mm. You need to keep what you've got. You need to keep the best players that you have. And I think Aaron Ramsey is one of our best players. And I think his new contract or the contract that's on offer to him should be... Uh, should be what's the word I'm looking for? Should recognise that fact, right? So yeah, I mean, what do you think of the argument that if you're going to put sort of restrictions on Jack Wilshere's contract because of how frequently he's in he's injured, something similar should apply to Ramsey, given that he has so many fitness problems himself. Do you think there's any mileage in that way of thinking? Um, I don't think it's un- it's unreasonable, no. Um, but I think you have to. You have to go in on one of them. If you really want to keep them, you've got to go in. And maybe it's, okay, maybe Wilshire's injuries are perhaps more detrimental to him um, and his future than Ramsey's. I mean, look, a Ramsey hamstring could be three weeks or it could be three months. And that has to be a consideration, I guess. But at the same time, when he's fit and when he's on form and when he plays regularly, he brings something to this team that we don't have and that we need. Uh, so it's either say, okay, we're going to give you a half hour's contract and hope you stay or they're going to sell him or what. I don't know what way they're going to manage this situation. I really hope they do what it takes to keep him um, because you know, we need to add to Aaron Ramsey, not take Aaron Ramsey away from the rest. I mean, what you have to wonder if Aaron Ramsey looks at what happened with Meza Ozil, say, and the amount of money Meza Ozil's currently getting paid to stay at the club and thinks, well, even if they're not offering what, what me what I want now, I might as well wait this out. My options are only going to get better with time. Um, yeah, and I, I think we we might well. I I think we might well go into the final season of Aaron Ramsey's contract. Yeah, uh, that's dangerous. Because uh, if he hadn't signed it now, why would he sign it anytime soon? Well, it depends what's on offer and when it's been on offer and how long it's been on offer and what kind of deal we're offering him. We don't really have any. There's been nothing about that really. It's quiet. It's very quiet, isn't it? Very quiet. Very quiet. So the the two things you draw from that are. It's quiet because they're keeping it quiet and they're dealing with it behind the scenes or it's quiet because fucking nothing is happening. And that's the worrying Mm. part for me because with the way that things are going at Arsenal or have gone with regards to certain players, it's it's as likely to be the latter as it is the former. Do you think the club should do all they can to avoid a situation where Aaron Ramsey goes into the final year of his contract? Yeah. That is to say, if if they cannot come to an agreement, do you think uh, he has to be sold this summer? That's such a tricky one, isn't it? Because yeah, yeah, I uh, I don't know. I that is very hard. Like, I don't think we can progress next season if we sell Aaron Ramsey, you know? Mm. 
particularly when you hear the stories about what yeah. kind of transfer money is available to us. Um, you know, sort of them putting out that thing, how we might have to sell to buy, you know, with Bellerin, that kind of story that, that came from the club. So that would be my worry there, that even if you got $50 million for Aaron Ramsey in the final year of his contract, where is he going to go? Probably, if he's not going to go abroad, he's going to go to one of the top four clubs, top five clubs. Well, not Tottenham, but yeah, one of the others. United or City. Yeah. yeah, something like that. He would. I mean, that's the reality of it. They would take him if he was available, I think. Um, so it's, um, I think it's just incumbent on the club to make it, uh, to make the kind of offer that Aaron Ramsey can't turn down. And if in a year's time or two years time, he wants to move on, then at least we've, we've got a a situation where we get a transfer fee for him, you know? Mm. So I don't know. It's a, it's a difficult one, but they need to sort this. They need to get it sorted. I know, amazing, isn't it, that we've ended up in the same position again. But as soon as we let the Alexis and Ozil situations become what they became, we left ourselves open to that happening with other players. Mm. Uh, and unfortunately, we've kind of opened that Pandora's box now. Mm. Here's an interesting question to which I can't think of an answer, but I'm hoping you can. It comes from... De- <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> it I, comes- I wouldn't hold your hopes up, but okay. <laughs> it comes from Dean Van Wyn, who says, uh, if Stoke go down needing one point, I think Arsenal can happily claim to have played a part in relegating them. What is your favourite Arsenal result that's had dire knock-on consequences for that opponent or another team? Can you think of one? That is a, there I'm must be loads, right? Yeah, like have we ever been on the final day playing against someone who were due to go down? I don't know. I don't know I either. I remember. Yeah. I can think of, you know, games mm. on the final day where we won and obviously Tottenham uh, didn't go to the... Uh, into the Champions League that was back in 2006 wasn't it with the lasagna and all that kind of stuff but that was of course yeah. that wasn't really us that was Tottenham losing to, to somebody else yeah uh, I don't know because like you know whenever we've kind of denied someone a title win the title's always gone to another rival hasn't it so it's been mm. uh, a kind of mixed blessing Um no, I can't really think of one, you know. Mm. I mean, there's been plenty of times we've obviously beaten teams on the way to relegation who we've been glad to see the back of. But uh, no, sorry, that is a very good question. Okay. I mean, if Stoke do go down, I will certainly relish yesterday's result all the more. Yeah. Hopefully, it's, hopefully it's by a very narrow margin and we can, mm. in our minds at least, say that we were the difference. Okay, well, the uh, Arscast Extra listeners, Hive Mind, uh, do let us know on Twitter if we're... Uh, forgetting some very obvious ones. I really feel like there have to be a number of these, um, but I just can't think of one off the top of my head. So I'm going to ask you a different question. Uh, this Go one on comes from, uh, oh, it's on Facebook, and it comes from Adele Hussein, who says, uh, or Adele Hussein, who says, not Adele, because that's like the singer, isn't it? Um, and she's a of Spurs course. fan, so boo. Um he says, what are your thoughts on Mesut Ozil's argument with Hector Bellerin? Do you feel like he's finally developing into an on-pitch leader? So I saw a couple of questions of this, but I did not see the argument in question. Can you enlighten me at all? Yes, I can. Uh, Mesut Ozil, or Hector Bellerin had the ball. Mesut Ozil made a run and Hector Bellerin didn't give him the ball. And Ozil sort of 
uh, ambled back towards onside and then Bellerin played him the pass when he was clearly offside and Ozo went, what the fucking hell? What are you, what are you fucking doing? Come on, you fucking... And Bellerin was like... Bah, 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 bah. And they had a little bit of back and forth on the pitch, a little bit of sniping on the pitch, and uh, and that was it, really. Uh, they, ah, and Hector Bellerin... Did Hector Bellerin make a joke about it on Twitter? Yes, he did. He said, yeah, he, yes, yeah, he, yeah, did. Yeah, he did, he did. Um, so it was... To me, it was just like, look, you 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 should demand the best from your teammates on the pitch. And I think people read sometimes far too much into on-pitch arguments. You know, two guys having a go at each other in the heat of the moment doesn't mean that they hate each other and want to kill each other. That's, you know, that's it really. Yeah, I mean, I have noticed, and I don't know if this is just kind of... A uh, kind of bias on my it, through my eyes, seeing what I want to see. But I have noticed that Özil seems a little bit more um, demonstrative or vocal on the mm. pitch since he not in fact not since he signed his new contract. Since you know a few weeks before he signed his new contract, at mm. least officially, there was that upturn in his performances around January, uh, and I do feel like that came with a little bit more demonstrativeness from him. So mm. I, I wouldn't go as far to say he's a leader. I don't think he's naturally a, a leader. You know, he's not the, he's not a, a big shouty centre-half. But I think maybe he is taking a bit more responsibility. I think in particular case, I do have sympathy with Hector Bellerin because Ozil is really the guy playing in front of him, except he's not, as we were talking about in part one. So uh, I, I, I sympathise with Bellerin there. But I think Ozil maybe, yeah, maybe he's throwing his weight around a bit more uh, and that's probably a good thing. I mean, as he gets older, he's such a figurehead for the club and such a high-status person within the squad. I mean, his salary alone makes him that, mm. that you do want to see him wielding a bit of influence yeah. I mean, wasn't, off the pitch. Wasn't there something a couple of weeks ago where was it perhaps Alex Iwobi? He got a bit um, unhappy with Alex Iwobi, a couple of passes yeah. that weren't the right weight and they weren't in the right place for him. And, uh, you know, he wasn't slow about letting Iwobi know that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, a senior player is telling a younger player, look, this is not good enough. You've got to be better here because it's not just for Ozil's benefit, it's for the benefit of the team. And it's part of the education process uh, that a young player gets on the pitch when an older player, an experienced player, tells them, that's not good enough, you need to do better there. Um, maybe it puts some pressure on the young player, but look, you're playing top flight football, top level football. It's all about pressure and your ability to deal with pressure and perform under the spotlight. So I don't have any issue with it at all whatsoever. You know, it's not destructive in any way. It's it's pretty constructive within the confines of a, a game of football for me. Yeah, I mean, when Alexis did it, you know, we called him a demanding winner, didn't we? And I think it's just more of that mm. kind of thing from Ozil. Mm. He expects people to be as good as, as he is. Although mm. he wasn't that good against no. Stoke. Wasn't that good, but he wasn't uh, as bad as I thought he was. I thought he was I thought he was quite bad at first and then I rewatched it and realised he was actually better than I thought. So uh I apologize for the uh the, the player rating I gave you yesterday, Messit. Um I'll add an extra point and a half. Oh, well, that's good. Otherwise, he would have shouted at you. He would. Told you you talk too much yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to save it for the dressing room. Your ratings aren't good uh, enough. Yeah. <laughs> Keith Poe, who's at Poe Keith on Twitter, says, uh, we spoke about Spina, he says, would you take Butland if we could steal him away from Stoke after they are relegated? I don't know. Um, mm. 
I'm obviously very open. I think we've spoken about it a couple of times. Uh, I'm open to the idea of Arsenal signing a goalkeeper this summer. I think it's one of the areas that we really, really, really need to uh, to make a signing in. You know, I think it's a, it's an important part of our team uh, and one where we need to to invest and we need to invest for the future. I, I've liked Butland. Uh, and I've seen not enough of him to be absolutely definitive. I think there's a good goalkeeper in there somewhere, but I do worry as well a little bit that England goalkeepers get a little bit overrated um, by the press, by the media, simply because they're English. Uh, he does look a good goalkeeper, but he's had his moments. Like every goalkeeper's had his moments, but I, I, wor- I wonder if the fact that he is English might just mean we can't go for him because if we have to spend some money this season, uh, this summer rather, if you blow a load of it on a goalkeeper by paying the English tax, as you might call it, then does it uh, hamper your ability to, to invest elsewhere? Potentially. I mean, the only thing that might work in our favour in that respect is that Stoke are going down. And sometimes that can mean a club needs to get people off the wage bill and that can, you know, expedite a deal a little bit. I mean, I definitely think it'd be cheaper than £90 million Jan Oblak or whatever it is. Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, I don't think there's any way we're getting Oblak, so. No. I mean, I. I, I, I'd be intrigued by the prospect of Butler. I think I've seen him play well enough times to think that there's a very good goalkeeper in there. He's 25, so he's still relatively young as well for a keeper. I mean, he, he's not had the best season, to be honest. He's been very up and down this year, but I do think he's talented. And I, it doesn't hurt to have homegrown eligible players mm. in the squad, as we've spoken about before. We're, we're, we're getting low on that. Yeah. A couple of lay. Um, he is so playing behind. A uh, yeah, he is playing behind a pack of useless cunts as well, though. I think that's fair to point out. Wow, I mean that Stoke team yesterday. I mean, I, I feel bad saying this because it's really my responsibility to know more. But I think three of the four midfielders, I was like, I have no idea if you're any good or not. I mean, I don't know where they've got some of these guys from. The answer is no. Yeah. <laughs> Did they have Stephen <laughs> Ireland on the bench? Did they? Yeah. I don't know if he's still a thing, is he? Well, that's what I was... I was. It, it, his name, the name Ireland was there, and I can only assume that it is Stephen Ireland, who I can't remember seeing on a football pitch for... I can't, I can't tell you how long. So, yeah, it is a Stephen Ireland. He's, he's playing for... Uh, mm-hmm. He's playing for Stoke. Uh, he's not... He's 31 now. Um, but, yeah, I mean, look... Uh, they're terrible and that can sometimes have an effect on a goalkeeper. The other side of that, of course, is everyone said Jordan Pickford looked amazing for Sunderland because he was getting peppered with shots all the time and it made uh, it made him stand out because of the amount of saves he had to make uh, playing for yeah. a really terrible team. So we'll see. But yeah, he's got to be yeah, one of the names on the list. As yeah. well. I mean, it's... You know, we don't. Uh, uh, it, it, there's a lot of unknown quantities with the goalie, isn't there? Sometimes you sign a goalie, they ostensibly have all the attributes that they need to be a top keeper, but they don't cope well with pressure, or they don't cope well with going into a big team and having to concentrate for ninety minutes without having to make too many saves. It, it's a it's a really tricky one to get right. And you know, when we sign a keeper, there will be an element of. Uh, I, I would say that Butland is one that I, I personally would be prepared to take a gamble on. All right. Um, I was going to make okay, a, we'll I was, okay. I was going to make <laughs> a very important point there, which uh, I can't remember what it is. 
bollocks. Okay, not to worry. One final question. One final question. This one comes from Aman, who's Aman Shkela. Uh, and he says, I think I'm pronouncing that wrong, so sorry. Um, he says, uh, in three words, can you describe the feeling of potentially relegating Ryan Shawcross and Charlie Adam to the championship? Three words weren't enough for me. Three words. I've got mine. Uh, oh, let's hear them. Ha fucking ha. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I can do better than that. That's pretty good. Yeah, mine was mine was going to be something like, mm, mm, mm. Delicious. But yeah, delicious. Yummy, yummy, yummy. Yeah, mm, delicious relegation. There's a... Yeah, mm, delicious relegation. That could be the slogan for Stoke season. Yeah, mm, delicious relegation, but we better not make it too delicious or Charlie Adam will eat it. <laughs> yes, I agree with that. That's uh, that's very nice. Mm, delicious relegation or half fucking hard would both work for me. Three words, it turns out, is quite enough. Plenty to get the point across. All right, well, look, we're going to leave it there. Thank you as ever for listening. We'll be here uh, with some kind of cast because we're playing uh, Moscow on Thursday night. So we'll have an cast at some point on Friday for you. In the meantime, please do give us a rating or a review on iTunes. It helps us uh, get up the charts and uh, above all those uh, other, you know, nefarious, evil football podcasts out there. So if you haven't given us a review, please do so. If not, thank you uh, anyway for listening. We appreciate it a great deal. We'll catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply.